0: time that happens you know uh michigan's playing on a sunday evening or i don't know maybe the lions are playing in the playoffs well that doesn't happen anyway something like that it reminds me of a story uh that pastor saunders used to tell when uh i want to say it was a sunday evening as best i remember and i think it was in the 80s and uh A member of the church had a radio, a little radio in the auditorium listening to the Tigers game during the message. So anyway, I won't look too closely this evening. Just don't. Somebody asked me if they shout out an amen. You know, how am I going to interpret that? You know, who's winning? Things like that. All right, you're in Mark, Mark chapter six. We're in uh, looking at theology. Remember, anybody? Can, anybody tell me what theology? Maybe a young person here. Anybody tell me what theology means? What what is that word? You have two parts of that word: theos, the first part, and then ology. What does it mean? Any any young people here? Tell me what that means. It wasn't in your notes. Ology means the study of. And then, Jack, the study of God. Good job. You could write that down in your notes if you'd like, but we're just looking at part two. Uh, Next Sunday night, we'll have the evening off, but we'll be back for part three of this part of our study. I'm going to begin by saying here in your notes, knowing and applying God's attributes to our lives will solve all of the problems of our soul and spirit. Uh, Sometimes we... We deal with things as in worry or anxiety. Um, So knowing and applying God's attributes to our lives will solve all of the problems of our soul and spirit. In whatever situation in life we find ourselves, God wants us to look to him because he desires to reveal himself to us in every situation. I want to look at a situation just briefly by way of introduction in Mark chapter 6. And it's a familiar one. Let's look there. Mark chapter 6. And uh, we'll start reading in verse number 30. Mark chapter 6 and verse 30. Of course, this is during Jesus' earthly ministry. It says in verse 30, And the apostles gathered themselves together unto Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said unto them, Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they had no leisure so much as to eat. Think about that. They were so busy, they didn't even have time to eat. And notice how Jesus cared for them, even just their physical. Uh, You need to take some time. You need to get away. Now, that was the goal. Look at verse 32. And they departed into a desert place by ship privately. And the people saw them departing, and many knew him, and ran afoot thither out of all cities, and outwent them, and came together unto him. So they chased them down. Verse 34, And Jesus, when he came out and saw much people, and was moved with compassion toward them, because they were as sheep not having a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. And when the day was now far spent, his disciples came unto him and said, this is a desert place, and now the time is far past. Send them away that they may go into the country round about and into the villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. Now, what was, before we go on, what was the disciple? The problem was here's Jesus, here's the disciples, everybody's tired, everybody's hungry. There's all of these multitudes of people there. And they don't have anything to eat. What was the disciples' um, what was their their way of handling it, according to this passage? Send them away, right? So this is very practical. Go home and get something to eat. We don't have any food for you. Very practical. Verse thirty-seven. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Give ye them to eat. And they said unto him, Shall we go and buy? 200 uh, denarion, penny worth. Denarion would be the Roman coinage of that day. Uh, Worth of bread, 200 denarion too. That would be almost uh, two-thirds of a year's salary. Two-thirds of a year's income. This is going to be quite a meal. (laughs) Or there was just that many people there. So Jesus says, well, give them something to eat. Don't send them away. And And immediately, now, their first resource was... Send the people away. Send them the home. Let them get what they need. Jesus says, no, I want you to feed them. And now they're thinking this all through. And uh, I'm this kind of a person that you can see me analyzing things. You know, there's like numbers going across my face. You know, it's just you can see the gerbils running. They're wearing themselves out as they try to figure out a problem. Um, And that's what was happening here to these disciples. They say, well, shall we go? buy two hundred penny worth of bread and give them to eat. So they're trying to solve their problems themselves. Now I do appreciate their responsibility. This is what we're all prone to doing. In fact, just this week with one of the deacons on the phone, we were talking about some of the issues, some of the challenges. There's some good things we're working on and working toward and God's providing and and uh, and yet this week he called me up and he said, well, what are we going to do about this? What are we going to do about that? And, and I'm I'm thinking the gerbils are screaming and and moaning in my mind and his mind. Smoke's coming out. And he's trying to figure things out. we trying to figure things out and be responsible. And then at one point I said, you know what? I think both of us just need to set this aside. And I think we need to spend more time praying about this, that God will show himself mighty on the behalf of the church. And I have to tell you, that thought came to me because of this passage. Look what happens in verse number 38. And he saith unto them, How many loaves have ye? Go and see. And when they knew, they said, Five loaves, two fishes. And he commanded them to make all sit down by companies upon the green grass. And they sat down in ranks by hundreds and by fifties. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fishes, he looked up to heaven and blessed and brake the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fishes divided he among them all. And they did all eat and were filled. And they took up twelve baskets full of the fragments of the fishes. And they that did eat of the loaves were about five thousand men. Five thousand men. Pastor Scott, can you imagine a a church fellowship of 5,000? He can. He can imagine it. Look out. So that doesn't include women or children now. So we should figure for another 10,000 at least for them. The point is this. There were a lot of people. And the disciples responded to that impossible meal situation the same way most of us respond to our events in our lives, right? Well, how am I going to pay for this? Right? Oh, we'll just send them all home. That's what we would have done, right? (laughs) Just send them home. That's what we would have done. Uh, The disciples even went beyond. They said, well, should we go pay for it? I don't know. Apparently they had some more resources or something. Should we go pay for this? And what they weren't doing was they weren't looking to Jesus as God. And we're prone to doing that. And they, uh, it says in verse 44, they did, and they that did eat of the loaves were about 5,000 men. And as we study this, we, we look at theology, the study of God, if we miss this, we miss the whole point. God never intended for you and for me to go through life on our own, apart from him, separated from him. He never, he never intended for you and for me To be so self-sufficient that we never look to him for provision. Or so intelligent that we never look to him for wisdom, you see. God wants, and he has always wanted you and me, to have fellowship with him. Fellowship with him. Us leaning on him. uh, Us looking to him for guidance and direction and wisdom and provision. God wants us, and the word of God is his revelation to us, God wants you and me to know him, and he wants us to love him, and he wants us to depend upon him. And the disciples had to learn that, and you and I do as well. Why don't we pray? Ian, would you please stand and pray and ask God to bless our time together, and then we'll go on with our study, okay? Amen. All right. Let's look at our notes. We're going to be considering uh, we're going to consider God by dividing his attributes into two parts, two parts, the natural attributes of God, uh, sometimes known as the non communicable attributes or the non moral attributes, as well as then we're going to look at the moral attributes of God. So what is an attribute? Well, an attribute is a quality or characteristic of a person or a thing we were to go around the room we don't have time for it disappointing i know but we could go around the room and you could uh, stand and describe the attributes of the person next to you wouldn't that be great we don't have time for that so we'll have to do that another time Um, but this is we're we're talking about the character the quality of who god is Um, now if you had to describe god with only one attribute which one would you choose Love, okay, God is love, the Bible tells us that. Holy, all right, any others? He's eternal, the eternality of God. We're going to get to that tonight. He's all-knowing, omniscience of God. We're going to get to that tonight. What's that? He's wise, yes, Tyler, he's very wise. Uh, He's all-knowing, the omniscience of God. So I think if I were to describe, if there's one attribute that stands out, maybe as the character of God, of who he is, um, I've heard it described this way. If you have a bicycle wheel, uh, you have at the center of the wheel, on the outside of the wheel you have a tire, then you have a rim, then you have spokes that are all connected to the hub at the center of the wheel. If if there was one attribute that would be the hub of Who God is, the center of who God is, many have said it would be His holiness. His holiness. And out of that comes His goodness, His justice, His mercy, His love. Um, The Bible does not present it like that. I think that's a a good way to think about it, to consider. It's good for us to consider. But uh, the holiness of God, and that's in your blanks, God is holy. God is holy. God is holy, Braden, are you up for reading scripture tonight at all? No no, all right, will, I'll call on you a little bit later, Jack, would you mind reading some scripture for me tonight? All right, grab your Bible and come on up, Isaiah chapter six Isaiah chapter six. Well I'll have you read verses one, two, and three Isaiah six um. Josh, you have to tell Ryan that his name is in my notes. All right, so he got sick on the right night. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1, 2, and 3. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings, with a twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and, whole, and the whole earth is full of his glory. Right. Good job, Jack. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory. You know, if you and I were to go to heaven and stand there in the throne room of God, you know what we would hear them them saying about God? This is what Uzziah heard uh, when he was able to have this vision of God. You know what they said around the throne room of God? Holy, holy, holy. Now, they, they did not say love, love, love. They were not saying Grace, gracious, gracious, gracious. Uh, They were not saying just, just, just. They were saying holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. I believe that all of God's attributes stem from his character. Uh, God's character is his holiness. God's holiness is his perfection. And when we see God as holy, we see ourselves properly. All right, Will, come on up, bud. Come on up. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5. Dr Norell, what do you feed a boy to help him grow He's growing but Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 5 it said I who woe woe is me for I am un, un undone undone because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Good job. So Isaiah, after he says what, we read what Jack read to us, where he has this vision and he sees the Lord high and lifted up and there in in his throne room are these uh, beings and they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Isaiah's response to that is, Woe am I! Woe is me! For I am undone. God, you are holy, but I, but I am not holy. God, you are high and lifted up, but I am lowly. And This is Isaiah's response. And so, when we see God as holy, we see ourselves properly as we should. So, I want to notice the natural attributes of God in the time in our time tonight. Um, again, we're going to be looking at these uh, what are called the non-moral attributes of God, not the immoral, Okay, big difference, non-moral, or non-communicable. In other words, uh, the moral attributes of God are communicable. Uh, In fact, God commands us to be holy. God commands us to love the way he loves. Um, God commands us to do these things, to be gracious and to be merciful. So Uh, There are some of his attributes that he commands us, uh, and those are communicable, okay? But there are some attributes of God that are non-communicable. They're they're the natural attributes of God. It's who God is, and man, as people, we can never be like God in that sense. you understand what I'm saying? So we're going to look at these attributes here, here this evening. The natural attributes of God are the very nature of God's being, They are attributes that only God possesses. The natural attributes of God are unique to God and can never be the characteristics of men, either now or in the future. In other words, you and I are never going to know everything. Right. God knows everything. As someone uh, Tyler said, wisdom, God is wise. Um, If we were to take that one step further and and talk about his omniscience, he knows everything. I don't know everything. I I never have known everything and I'm never going to know everything. And God doesn't command me to know everything. So we're looking at these natural attributes of God. Number one, God is transcendent. God is transcendent. Uh, And what does that mean, transcendent? Well, God is above his creation. God is above his creation. In Isaiah 55 and verse 8, the Bible says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. In Isaiah 57, again in Isaiah, in verse 15 of chapter 57, he says, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite one. So he's talking, we're seeing God here as his ways are higher than ours. He is high and he is lofty. God is transcendent. You know that we all have a tendency, man has this tendency to reduce God to our level. And that's so silly. It really is. I mean, who wants a God that's at their level? Uh, Who wants a God that, that we can fully understand? Who wants a God who always does what we want him to do, what we think is best? But see, that's the tendency of mankind. Mankind seems to be prone to wanting a God that we can completely understand. It's interesting because throughout humanity, the history of man, um, people have uh, created religions. Uh, They've created uh, they've created gods, false gods, gods that they could explain, gods that they could uh, that they could almost to some degree control, you know, but I'm so thankful our God is not like that. Our God is transcendent. He is above his creation. He is above his creation. God is exalted far above all creation in all the universe. Aren't you glad that God is not limited by you? Aren't you glad? I mean, aren't I mean, I'm th- thinking about this? Aren't you glad that God's not limited by your intellect? If He were, we wouldn't exist. Okay, the world wouldn't exist. If He was, li- if He were limited by our intellect, if, if all God knew about mathematics and science and biology and The anatomy, if he was limited to what I know about those things, uh, there would be no life at all. Okay, I'm so glad that God's not limited uh, and that he's above, that he's imminent. Okay, number two, God is or excuse me, God is transcendent. Number two, God is imminent. And what does that mean? God is imminent. And that means that God is actively involved with his creation. God is actively involved with his creation. I read uh, Isaiah 57 and verse 15 a little while ago. I'm going to emphasize another part of that verse where he says, For thus saith the high and lofty one, that is talking about God's transcendence, the one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. He says, I dwell in the high and holy place with him also. Notice that with him also, that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble, and to revive the heart of the contrite one. I think that's amazing. So not only, number one, do we see that God is transcendent. He's above his creation. He's awesome. Um, But he condescends to you and to me, and he makes himself a part of our lives. (laughs) Uh, The psalmist put it this way, what is man that thou art mindful of him? Uh, David understood, God, you are awesome. You are incredible. God, you are above your creation. In other words, God, you don't need us. But yet you think about us. And and this word, imminent, has that idea of God being actively involved in his creation, uh, with him. Though he is high and lofty, yet he condescends and involves himself in our lives. I think probably the greatest illustration of God's imminence is when he came and took upon himself the form of a man, right? God became a man, and he lived amongst men for 33 years or so on this sin-cursed earth. And, of course, the name Emmanuel means God with us. God with us. God is imminent. And that's so important. There are some false gods in the world, or in in religions of the world today. They're not real. But even those false gods, the people, the creators of those false gods, have kind of created them where they they have nothing to do with people. And and God, the one true God, the creator of all things, the one who is all-powerful, who knows everything, Who knows who we are, knows where we fail, knows where we struggle, knows how helpless we are sometimes. God, who is awesome, condescends and he involves himself in our lives. Number three, God is eternal. God is eternal. What does that mean? God is eternal. What do you think about when you think about eternal? Forever, right. So th- th- does eternal mean that that God has no end? Yes or no? Yes, but it's more than that. Because truly, you and I, us in this room, um, aren't we eternal too? I mean, we're going to live somewhere forever, correct? Every one of us. We're going to live somewhere forever. Either we're going to, if we receive Christ, we have eternal life. That means we're never going to die. Aren't we eternal? And the answer is no. Why not? We had a beginning. And this is where it gets a little hard on our brains. God had no beginning. We can kind of understand God has no end. Uh, We can kind of understand that. It's that that part that having no beginning, I mean, that's just mind-boggling to us. But the Bible clearly teaches that God is eternal. Think about that. Psalm 90 in verse 2 says, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. I mean, think about that verse. Before the mountains were brought forth, or before God made the earth and the world, God existed. Everlasting. I mean, this is who, this is who we worship. These are the reasons why we worship him, because he's not like us. He's not us. He's not like us. He's eternal. He's transcendent. He's imminent. You know that God never had a beginning, um, whether it was, you know, when we think and talk about his creation, the sun had a beginning, S-U-N, it had a beginning. We think about angels. Are angels eternal? No. God, they're creations of God. God created them. Um, we could talk about the evil one, Satan. Is he eternal? No, he's not eternal. Um, there is only one being that is eternal, and that is God. There is no one else like him. All of God's creation has a beginning, but God has always been. He has always been. Um, letter B, God lives in the eternal present we I can take a lot of time with this, but God lives in the eternal present. There is no past, present, or future with God. I put this in your notes for your pondering. There's no past with God, present, or future with God. Only the eternal present. Um, God is not limited by time. God is not limited by time. Jehovah means the self-existent one. In Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14, the Bible says, And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. you remember when God was uh, bringing Moses up to lead his people out of Israel, and and Moses, remember, he said, I, I, can't, I can't talk really well. <laughs> Is there anybody else that you can send in my place or with me? And... And God's saying, no, I am the I am. That's who I am. I am the I am. Whatever is na- needed, I am. That's what God was telling Moses. And Moses says, well, who, who, who should I tell the people of Israel, the people who are in bondage? I mean, what should I tell them? Uh, who should I tell them that I'm representing that's going to lead them out? And, and God tells them, you tell the people of Israel who are in bondage, who are Frankly, some of them hopeless, uh, who've been in slavery for these hundreds of years. This is a part of their culture. This is a part of their DNA. You tell them that I am has sent me, has sent you. Okay. Uh, in other words, whatever it is that they will need, the great I am will provide. And we've experienced this in our lives. Not only financial provision. Not only... The comfort of a home to live in, or the relationships that God brings into our lives, but His own personal comfort, wisdom and understanding, truth. The R.I.M., I Am, God, the God of the Bible, the eternal God is Our I Am. We, we looked this morning in Genesis chapter 22, where God commanded Abraham to sac- offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice, a burnt offering unto God. And it's interesting, in that passage, I think I left my yes in the right place. It's interesting, and you might have noticed this this morning. um, The angel of the Lord, or the messenger of God, tells Abraham, Abraham, Abraham. And he tells him, don't don't take the life of your son. And Abraham, he's got the knife in his hand, he's reaching it out, he's extending it to uh, slay his son. And he tells him, don't do that. And he says this, he says for now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son from me. Did you notice that this morning when we read that? Oh wait a minute, doesn't didn't God didn't God already know that that Abraham feared him? Yes or no? Did God already know that? Yeah. Uh, What is God doing? Well, God was experiencing life with Abraham at that time in Abraham's life. uh, The point is this. He's so personal. He's so personal. Um, With you and with me, as with Abraham and Isaac. Abraham was not alone. Isaac was not alone. You're not alone. God is right here with us. He was right there with Abraham. He'll be right with you as a child of God when you leave here tonight and you go to your home. And the thoughts of the week coming and what you have to do this week come rushing in. And when know we got some children on spring break, so you don't get, you don't have to do a whole lot this week, and that's great. But others, there's a lot going on. There's some concerns. There's some frustrations. There's some personal issues. Whatever the case may be, God is right. There with you, if you are his child. Very, very personal. Uh, Number number four, God is immutable. God is immutable. These are big words. We don't use them a lot. And that's why we're taking time to look at them. God is immutable. And what does that mean? Well, it means that God is neither capable or uh, susceptible to change. God is unchangeable. He's invariable. He is permanent. Malachi 3 and verse 6 says, For I am the Lord. I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. (laughs) Oh, he says to the Israelites, The reason you're not consumed and wiped off the globe is because not of who you are, but God says it's because I don't change. He doesn't change. God is immutable. You know, God's character never changes. God's character never changes. In every situation for eternity, God is holy. Aren't you glad for that? You know that our character can change? It can. A man can be trustworthy one day, and another day he cannot be trustworthy. A young person can be dependable to do the right thing in one circumstance, But in a different circumstance, a young person can do the wrong thing, correct? Haven't we all done that? Yeah, we've all done the wrong thing at times. God never does the wrong thing. For all of eternity, forever. Eternity past, through the present, eternity future, God will always, always, always do the right thing because he never changes. All that God is, he has always been and all that he has been and is, he will ever be. God uh, Can God change for the better? I could ask you that question. Can God change for the better? Can he get better? No, he can't. Uh, he can't get any better. He, he doesn't change. Can you and I get better? Yeah. Yeah, we can. We, we ought to, right? <laughs> we ought to grow. But but God can't get better. Um, God is... Perfect, and there's no getting better from that. But what does the Bible mean when we're told that God repented? I want to talk about this just for a few moments. Several times in the Bible, it, it tells us that God repented or it repented God. Um, I, one of those situations was uh, before the flood and the world was so wicked and so vile, it repented God. But wait a minute. You say, Pastor Ferguson, you just said that God's immutable and he can't change. And yet, what, what do you mean? Because the word repent has the idea of to change one's mind. And uh, Pastor Ferguson, if God is immutable and he doesn't change, uh, what is this idea of repenting then? I mean, uh, what what is that even possible? Well, in Jonah, turn there in your Bibles, if you would, Jonah chapter three. We'll look at an illustration of this. Jonah chapter 3 in verse, uh, we'll start near the beginning of that chapter, chapter 3. And here's an example of God repenting. Interesting. Uh, Genesis, uh, Jonah chapter 3, and you know the story of Jonah, right? God said, go to Nineveh. And Jonah says, I'm going to take a ship to Tarshish, right? And uh, And God says, no, you're not. He didn't say that. He just decided, no, you're not going to do that. And uh, you remember he sent sent along a great fish, first the storm, and the sailors are trying to get control of the ship, and and uh, Jonah's sleeping. And finally, they Jonah says, listen, I'm your problem. you got to throw me out into the sea. And they do eventually do that, and God sends along the great fish, uh, and he swallows Jonah, and he was in the belly of the great fish. How many... Days and nights. Yes. Go ahead, Will. Three. Right. He's in the belly of the fish. Three days, three nights. And then the fish does what? Yes. He got rid of Jonah. He expelled him out onto the shore. And then Jonah does go to Nineveh eventually. And that's where we pick it up in chapter three. Uh, God says in verse two, uh, arise, go unto Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. And so Jonah arose and went into Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days' journey. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey, and he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's another way to, that'd be like you coming, or me coming to you, and my message to you was, you have 40 days in your entire life. You're going to be taken into slavery and bondage. You're going to lose everything that you have. It wouldn't be that encouraging of a message. okay? Jonah's message wasn't all that encouraging, but it was the truth. In verse 5, the people of Nineveh, who were a very wicked people, the Assyrians were a very wicked, evil people. In fact, the Assyrians used to actually skin people alive, okay? Um, and which was part of the reason Jonah didn't really like them because the Israelites had suffered at the hands of the Assyrians and but notice how the people respond to Jonah's message in verse 5 so the people of Nineveh believed God wow they believed God now tell me what can happen to a person who believes God what happens to a person Tyler yeah they get saved This is what happened. This is what's happening in Nineveh. They believed God. This was the beginning. They received his word. I think some of the Ninevites believed God for the salvation of their soul. I imagine we might be able to talk to them someday. And notice it says they believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them, uh, even to the least of them, to the smallest of children, to the most important of men. For the word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he laid his robe from him and covered him with sackcloth and sat in ashes. He was repenting, and he caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and pry mightily unto Elohim, unto God, the supreme God. Wow, this huge city, the king of this city says, listen, we're going to fast and we're going to mourn and we're going to repent. We believe God. Uh, Verse number number 8, he says, Yea, let them turn everyone from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Wow, this would be great if this happened in America, wouldn't it? This would be a wonderful thing. Verse 9, the the king of Nineveh says, Who can tell if Elohim, the supreme God, will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? Now, it's a good thing we aren't there with our notes because we could say, well, Mr. King of Nineveh, um, God, I've got some bad news for you. God is immutable. He doesn't change. And the message has been proclaimed by Jonah, your disobedient, his disobedient prophet. And uh, you've got 40 days. Sorry, God doesn't change, right? Because that's the doctrine of immutability. But look at the next verse in verse 10. And God saw their works. That they turned from their evil way. And what does it say? And God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them, and he did it not. Now, evil, that word, has the idea of destroying the city. You say right there, Pastor Ferguson, God is not immutable, he can change. No, there are. there's a, a Hebrew word, okay, uh, that's used throughout the Old Testament. Um, uh, let's see, uh, nachem. I believe it is. Uh, it means to draw breath forcibly, or to groan or to sigh. Now, on the count of three, I want us all. I shouldn't do that with COVID. I was going to have us all sigh. Oh well. Um, I, w- I was thinking about having Pastor Burden coming up, and I was going to say, uh, "What's your least favorite vegetable, Pastor Burden?" All of them. There's got to be. There's got to be one that stands out. Beneath all the others. Spinach. Cream spinach, maybe. Soggy spinach. Or uh, whatever. Kale. Something like that. Anyway, um, how would you, if you had to express yourself with only a sigh at the thought of spinach, this was all you were going to eat for the meal. You came home and Erin had prepared it. She loves you so much and wants your health. And she said, Behold, husband, here is your dinner. What would be your sigh? <laughs> you would, oh. Everybody, oh. If he wasn't trying to be polite to his wife, oh. Okay, but now what's your favorite food, Pastor Burden? Cheeseburger. I know you like Red Robin cheeseburgers. Uh, but with no vegetables on Pastor Burden's burgers. Ketchup, right? That, that is, that has, that's not a vegetable though, right? That's a fruit. Somehow some botanist meh, messed that up somewhere along the way. But anyway, uh, fruit. Okay, so the ketchup and cheeseburger. How would you respond if you came home? Do you normally have one or two if Aaron's making them or you're making them? Just one, but they're probably huge. All right, all right. So, like, well, how would you respond, nachem, uh, uh, with a sigh at the idea of your favorite burger? I mean, we're not talking about it's not overdone, but it's not too rare. It's moist and juicy. It's the right size. Not one of those little ones that the buns like hanging over the edge. But we're talking it fills the bun. You have your favorite kind of ketchup there. You can put it onto your heart's content. And then you're going to open your mouth, and you're going to sink your teeth into that burger, and you're going to consume it. So what kind of a sigh, what kind of a... Give me a... Ah, yeah, okay, good. (laughs) Okay, I don't know. I I think you're holding back. Josh, Josh, you're an actor. You need to get with Pastor Burden and work on some of these things. All right. Um, But you get the idea, though, right? So... uh, Pastor Burden is the same. He changeth not when it comes to vegetables and cheeseburgers. Um, but you, depending on what you fr- put in front of him, if he's being totally uh, transparent without holding back, his response is going to be different from, oh, and I'm not doing it justice, the word come. okay? Uh, if you think about it as the Hebrews would, or the Jewish people in their culture would, it would be more of a, oh! which would be probably more about your vegetable response, I would think. <laughs> so we're getting close to mourning or grief, okay, Nachum. If, uh, uh, if this exhaling, and this is the word that's translated, repented the Lord, or, and that would be the kind of repented where he says about the people of the earth before he destroys the earth with the flood it repented the lord that he made man oh okay but it, when they hear in nineveh the whole city repents and they're believing upon the lord and they're turning away from their evil works they're obeying god a whole city it takes 3 days to walk through the city to the other side i mean this is huge and they repent now wait a minute how did jonah respond by the way to the repentance was he happy well, how did he respond? He was so glum. He was like Eeyore. He goes out and sits down. <sighs> but that's not how God responded. The Bible says it repented the Lord. He changed. Not who he is. He didn't change who he is. He changed what he was going to do based upon what the people in Nineveh did. And so it wasn't a, a, a pastor burden looking at vegetables for dinner. It was, ah, wow, We're, no words spoken, just, ah, so exciting. He didn't destroy the city at all. But know this, God doesn't change. Mankind changes. Mankind changes. We change all the time. Like a yo-yo, you know, one day doing this, one day doing that. But God never, never, never changes, never changes. All right, number five, God is omnipresent. That isn't it. God is omnipresent. Uh, it means God is everywhere at once. God is everywhere at once. You can look with me to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. William, I wrote your name down here at this spot. Do you want to read it, or would you rather not? No? All right. You, I'll read it this time. Psalm 139. Verse 7, I'm talking about the omnipresence of God. Psalm 139. Apparently, I'm not very good at turning in my Bible and talking at the same time. Psalm 139, verse 7. 139, verse 7. He says, Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. You know, this is one of my favorite psalms in all the Bible. Psalm 139. And in it, it talks about some of the attributes of God. It talks about the fact that God is omnipresent. He is everywhere at once. Letter A says the omnipresence of God is the key, is a key attribute of God in fighting temptation to sin for you and for me. Um, Genesis chapter 39. Think of Joseph. And uh Potiphar's wife. Joseph's family was nowhere to be found. They were nowhere around him. Potiphar, I don't know where he was, but Potiphar's wife liked Joseph. But it was wrong. But Joseph was there. He was responsible for everything in Potiphar's house. He's all alone. And Potiphar's wife likes him. And I don't think Potiphar's Potiphar's wife was was, uh, not fair to look upon. I think she was fair to look upon. And uh, and uh, and Joseph's response is, how can I do this thing? I can't do this. I can't sin against the Lord. What was it that kept Joseph from doing that? And I believe a lot of it had to do with the presence of God. Joseph understood God is here. God sees. God knows. Uh, Proverbs chapter 15 and verse three says the eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good. Uh, so the omnipresence of God, when we talk about these, these attributes of God or Bible doctrine, again, they're meant to be applied to our lives. Maybe, uh, maybe a teenager is trying to sneak listening to wrong music in their vehicle while they're out and about. Well, nobody ever know. Pastor Burden doesn't know. Mrs. Burden doesn't know. My parents don't know. Here's the thing. God knows. God knows because he's there. Um, A fellow who's trying to uh, do the right thing and not look at wrong things on the computer. You say, yeah, you know, these computers and these phones and, uh, you know, I mean, everything's traced and tracked, you know, big brothers looking and watching. Really, that's the least of your concerns. God is watching. God is there. I mean, this is just practical application from some of these Bible doctrines, this theology of God, His omnipresence. He's everywhere at once, He sees it. Uh, letter B says, Are you comforted or convicted by God's presence? You know, it's one of the two. Uh, either you think about the fact that God is, He's everywhere, He's with you, He can be with you tomorrow, and He's going to be with me tomorrow because He's everywhere at once. And we're not alone. He's with us. Either that's a great comfort to us. Lord, thank you for your omnipresence that you're going to be with me tomorrow. Or it can be real conviction. Ooh, it can be, make us afraid. Oh, um, the Lord sees, the Lord knows. Um, so is it convicting or is it a comfort? Number six God is omnipotent. God is not omnipotent or God is omnipotent. God is uh, all powerful is what it means. And he's able to do whatever he wills to do. Letter A says God created the universe and its creatures. God created the universe and its creatures. The Bible refers to God as the almighty. I think 56 times within its pages. Jeremiah 32 and verse 17 says, ah, Lord God. Behold, thou hast made the heaven and the earth by thy great power and stretched out arm, and there is nothing too hard for thee. That's a great encouragement, isn't it? Our God, He's above all. He's transcendent, and and He's everywhere at once, but He is also omnipotent. He is all-powerful. There's nothing that He cannot do. And so name it. You say, You say, uh, you know, Pastor Ferguson, I've struggled with this my whole life. You know what? God, your God, the God of the Bible is omnipotent. He's all powerful. He can help you with that. He can deliver you from that. You say, Pastor Ferguson, my marriage, it's not what it ought to be. God's omnipotent. And he can do all things. You say, Pastor Ferguson, you know, I'm, I'm I'm a kid, I'm a young person and in my family life, my mom and dad, my parents, you know, they, Pastor Ferguson, they don't love the Lord. They don't know God. They, they're not trying to lead me to the Lord. And Pastor Ferguson says, it's kind of hard because I'm trying to follow God, but my parents don't care about God. You know what? You, Your God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He will not fail you. You can trust in him. He is strong enough. He's powerful enough. He is all-powerful, not just powerful enough. He's all-powerful. God is omnipotent. Um, uh, letter B says God can do anything that is in harmony with his character. And I put in parentheses there his holiness. God can do anything that's in, in harmony with his character. Now, I wrote there he doesn't do things that are foolish or self, um, uh, that are contradictory. He doesn't make square circles. Okay. How many, if God wanted to, could he... Um, makes the whole world disappear and then make us reappear could he could he could he how many how many angels could God put on the, the end of a needle you know okay that's silliness okay that's not God's not silly. Uh, he is all-powerful though. Let her see the omnipotence of God is a comfort. God can do anything as easily as anything else. Uh, name something that's really easy for you to do, George. What's something that's easy to do mechanically in the shop for you? You don't have to think about it; you just do it. Brake jobs. How many of us here have never done a brake job on our vehicle? Can I see your hand? All right. So for George, you don't have to think about it; he just does it. But for you and for me, we're like, okay, brake jobs. We're watching videos. This isn't my car. What kind of? We don't even know what kind of brakes there are. We have calipers what what is that is that like a creature a caliper you know brake pads rotors what are we what are we dealing with so for some of us it's totally clueless but for for george it's easy now uh pastor Burden, you can design things he, he designs things regularly he de- made this des- makes designs takes photographs you photograph anything george are you a photographer cars and bikes all right so there it is honey i'm bringing this home tonight <laughs> Hope, hope you're happy. (laughs) Okay, that's George's photography. Whereas Pastor Burden, he's shooting all kinds of photography, and we look at those things and say, "Wow, look at that snowflake. That is incredible. Look at the detail in that. He captured that or that flower, that petal." Okay, but for God, he can do anything just as easily as anything else. Now think about that. He created the heavens and the earth with his words. it's not hard for him. It's not hard for him. Whew. He is amazing. He is amazing. The number seven, God is omniscient. God is omniscient. In Psalm 139, verse 1, he says, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down sitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. I don't even know what my thoughts are afar off. But God already understands them. Thou compassest my path and my lying down and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before and laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain unto it. The psalmist is moved to worship God because God knows everything. And David says, you know my thoughts you know what I'm going to be thinking in the future? Some of us are saying, I'm having trouble thinking right now. Do you know what my thoughts are in the future? God, God knows all of our thoughts. It's the doctrine of God's omniscience. He knows the future as well as the past. He knows the future as well as the past. Oh, I missed that verse. Oh, I don't like missing verses. We're going to move on. Letter A. Uh, God knows whatever he wills to know. Can you imagine that? It'd be nice, right? I want to know how to do a brake job on my truck. Nothing. <laughs> God wills, whatever he wills to know, he knows. He's, he knows it. He doesn't have to think about it, he just knows it. He knows everything. Ian, we talked about that train, right? A uh, magnetic train. Uh, or a vehicle, how we could get a vehicle to move down the road with magnets. And it turns out the Japanese already have a whole train moving on magnets uh, on the ra- on a rail system. The tra- whole train literally hovers over a magnet, is centered, and it is moved along and slowed down by the changing of the polarity of the magnets. I hope they have airbags. No, I don't know. It works. It's fast. Uh, some some of these things, they're mind-blowing to us, the anatomy of the human body. Dr. Norell's going to know things, and she could talk about things, and we'd all go, huh? You know, she could talk about it, and you may, how God knows it all. He knows it all already. He knows it all. He's all-knowing. Isaiah 43 and verse 25. Um, there it is. I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake and I will not remember thy sins. He's not suffering from amnesia. God chooses, He wills not to remember them and hold them against me. Now He knows everything. He chooses not to remember them. If you've ever struggled with bitterness, you know you've struggled with, you can't forget it. You can't let it go. It, it dominates you. You think about it all the time. Every time you see the person, I remember who I remember. Nobody has ever been wrong the way God has been wrong. No one has ever been offended the way, God, the way we've offended God, the way mankind has offended God. God chooses not to remember our sins. This is an amazing reality. He's omniscient, but he chooses not to remember our sins. Hebrews 8 and verse 12 says, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Letter B says, God has never learned or discovered anything. He knew us before we were born, and he knows our thoughts before we even think them. God never asks questions for information. He always asks questions for our self-examination. I don't have time to go into that. Sometimes in the Bible, you'll find God asking someone a question. He did that with Adam and Eve in the garden. He said, "Um, uh, who told you you were you you were unclothed, told you that you were naked? Well, um, and, uh, you know, why did you eat of the fruit? Did you eat of the fruit? He's asking these questions, a whole series of questions, and they're giving answers. What was he doing? God knew all the answers. He wanted them to consider them. By the way, that's good parenting too. By the way, ask your children questions. Hey, why did you do that? It'll reveal some thinking or a lack thereof. Okay, ask questions. It's good. Uh, letter or uh, uh, Roman numeral eight. We'll close with this. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. And The sovereignty of God means that God is the authority to do what He wants with what is His. What is the extent of God's sovereignty? Well, God is the supreme ruler and over all things. God is the—he's over the universe. It belongs to Him. God is over all the plants and animals, uh, the cre- His creation. He's over them. God is over all nations. He can do with them what He wants. God is over the length of a man's life. Wow, a lot's been made of that over the last year or so. And while you and I ought to use wisdom. Remember, Dr. Norell and I talking early on. She says, well, I don't go play in the road. In other words, you use common sense. You use wisdom. You apply your knowledge of the situation to the situation. You use wisdom. But at the same time, you combine with that this reality. God controls the the length of of a man's life. We do not extend our lives in length and we do not shorten them in length. God is over all of these things. He's sovereign of these things. I'll end with a question, can God limit his own sovereignty? He's over all things, but can he limit his own sovereignty? If if you and I could limit his sovereignty, then he wouldn't be God. If if we could limit his sovereignty. God and his sovereignty may impose upon himself certain limitations that are not in conflict with his holiness. In fact, the sovereign God of the universe has given mankind a free will. He did this with Israel. He told them in Deuteronomy 11, Behold, I set before you this day a blessing and a curse, a blessing if ye obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you this day, and a curse if ye will not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside out of the way which I command you this day, to go after the the after other gods which ye have not known. Uh, he says, If you if you go out of your way, if you turn away from me, there will be a curse. Of course we know that Israel did choose to disobey God. Matthew 23, Jesus said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings? and ye would not. Wow. So God is sovereign. He can do what he wills to do with what is his. And yet he can also limit his sovereignty and give mankind freedom to choose. In Second Peter 3 and verse 9, Peter wrote, The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some men count slackness. But his long-suffering to us, we're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It is a wonderful truth of Scripture that the sovereign God of the universe can determine to give man a free choice in the matter of his own personal salvation. God did not have to give man that privilege, that responsibility, but he did. So when we think about the transcendence of God, that God is above his creation. His immanence, that God is actively involved in His creation, in our lives. His eternality, Dan mentioned His eternality. God is neither beginning nor ending. His immutability, God cannot change. His omnipresence, God is everywhere at once. His omnipotence, God is all powerful. His omniscience, He knows all things. His sovereignty, God is over all. Look to God this week. Look to Him. He is our savior. Look to God. He desires to reveal himself to us in every situation of our lives. This week, when you're afraid, remember that God is right with you. He's with you. You're not alone. He's all powerful. He's all powerful. You're not weak. You're not without with God's help. You see, in every situation, look to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time tonight. Thank you for this study. Um, Father, I pray that you would glorify yourself in our lives. Father, I pray that we would find ourselves rejoicing in who you are. Father, help us to look to you. Help us not to look within or look without or look around, but help us to look to you. And Father, I pray that we would praise your name for your goodness. And I ask these things in Christ's name. You are dismissed.